And a happy Valentine's Day to one and all. This is episode 87 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for spending some of your manufactured Hallmark holiday with me today. Kind of kidding, kind of not. What are you going to do? But if you're checking out episode 87 on the YouTube channel or enjoying the content, haven't done so already, please click like, subscribe, comment, turn on those notifications. Or if you're catching up with this episode on the audio platforms such as Spotify or iTunes, don't forget to click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. So in honor of Valentine's Day, in this particular episode, I'm going to discuss two big movies from the 90s, one of which was an extraordinary success. The other was financially successful and is well-remembered, but I consider it more of a fantastic adaptation of a book. They're both brilliant book adaptations, but not for the exact same reason. The movies we're going to talk about, first one, and then the other will go chronologically. Uh, Jonathan Demme's all-timer, Silence of the Lambs, which as some of you know, swept all of the major Oscars it was nominated for at the 1992 Oscars, films released in 91. Uh, Silence of the Lambs won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. In this case, Adapted Screenplay from a book. And the other movie is a film that has actually gotten a lot of play on social media. Uh, excuse me. Well, social media, yes, but on streaming uh, particularly. It seems any time an older movie that may not be as well-known from a major actor, in this case, Clint Eastwood, um, when it lands on Netflix, whether it's in the line of fire, whether it's Unforgiven, or in the case of this one, whether it's 1997's Absolute Power, people rediscover it, or in the case of Absolute Power, let's say Gen Z, Gen Y, and younger Generation Xers and Millennials discovering it for the first time, saying, holy shit, how did I not know about this film? And I thought I was a Clint Eastwood fan. So I'm going to get into the adaptations specifically for both, and the stupendous achievements that they both are in their own terms. And again, it's relative because Absolute Power is a good movie. It's not Silence of the Lambs. But the cleverness and the ingeniousness of trans uh, transferring, transporting, transforming, if you will, all those words apply, a 500-page novel into a 115-ish page screenplay. There is an art to it. And in both of those films, they are two of the best adaptations of the 90s. So with Silence of the Lambs, it is a book that my dad was familiar with. He had read uh, Red Dragon, which uh, was turned into a film in 1986 by Michael Mann, the same Michael Mann who's still working, who did Heat, he did Ali, he just did the Ferrari movie with Adam Driver. Absolute genius. Uh, Michael Mann did an adaptation of... Uh, Red Dragon called Manhunter in 1986. And it was based on a book by Thomas Harris, as was Silence of the Lambs. And they were both huge runaway bestsellers, but despite the fact that they're kind of in the twisted horror thriller genre, serial killer range, uh, they were both very highly acclaimed from a critical perspective, not just as a good read, but great literature. And so with silence, there were a lot of issues 
the, the issues weren't so much adapting the book as trying to figure out who was going to produce the film and what approach should be taken. Because first movie, Manhunter, although now is considered one of the best films of its genre, it didn't do that well at the box office. And the original producer, who was Dino De Laurentiis, he more or less punted. He wasn't interested in uh, making another movie with that character. He thought it was box office poison. Because from his perspective, I hired the best filmmaker that I could, Michael Mann. I got a great cast, Dennis Farina as Jack Crawford, uh, William Peterson as Will Graham, and a super creepy Tom Noonan in the role of the bad guy, Francis Dollarhide. Oh, and a young Joan Allen in the pivotal role of the woman who kind of gets involved and maybe ends up dead, not going to spoil it. But the film did not make money. It was a disappointment. Dino DeLoretti's punted. And then there were a lot of people who circled the project, including, of all people, Gene Hackman. And Gene Hackman loved Silence of the Lambs and got involved and his originally was going to play Hannibal Lecter. And it's ironic because he ended up playing someone in prison, a real scumbag, in the adaptation of John Grisham's The Chamber the year before the other movie I'm going to talk about, Absolute Power, in 1996. He plays pretty much a condemned piece of crap. And his grandson, played by Chris O'Donnell in that movie, is trying to get him a little bit of clemency in The Chamber. But Gene Hackman attempted to adapt Silence of the Lambs because he's a writer as well as an actor, and he couldn't do it. He wasted about a month of his life attempting to turn that very dense 500-page, brilliant Thomas Harris novel into a 120-ish page screenplay, and Hackman became so frustrated because he was working for more than a month, and he, came, he went to, um, I don't know, whoever was running it at Orion Pictures by that point, after De Laurentiis was gone, and he said, fuck you, I don't want it, I can't do this, this can't be done. I'm 30 pages into the book, I've got 30 pages of screenplay, I can't do it. And he then dropped out of the project entirely, because in theory, he was going to play Lecter, would have been a challenge for him, but he got so frustrated, he walked away from the project. What ended up happening with that was a Ted Talley, terrific writer who has done um, other works which I really like. In fact, he did a film also in the mid-90s with Liam Neeson and uh, Meryl Streep, and I want to say Edward Furlong, called Before and After. I'm pretty sure that he wrote the screenplay for that, and that was also a kind of murder mystery where there's a death and one person gets blamed, and how far would you go to protect your son? If you thought your son committed a capital crime, what would you do? Very interesting kind of moral dilemmas. But the case of silence, the reason, one of the reasons why Ted Talley's adaptation was thought of so highly is that he managed to take this very dense, hardcore 500-page crime novel with a lot of different three-dimensional characters that just jump off the page. And he figured out how to take that and distill it into a 120, I, I haven't seen the actual script, I've been told it's in the range of 120 pages, which, as we talked about, would usually translate to a two-hour movie. But he managed to get the essence of 500 pages of novel, of Thomas Harris's, many people consider his, his finest work, into 120 pages. And yes, you're not going to have everything in the book, it's impossible. But what he did specifically, for those who know the film, Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford, 
a major component of Thomas Harris' book is Jack Crawford dealing with his wife who is dying of cancer. And Jack Crawford, there have been arguments made that he's essentially the second lead in the book. He's almost as important as Clarice. There's really nothing of that. I don't think the wife is even mentioned in the movie. These are the choices you make in the art of adaptation. There were people, presumably, who read the book, who, when they saw the movie, said, what the hell happened to Crawford's wife? What the fuck? You gotta make choices. Now, if you're gonna do a miniseries, you can have all that in there. If you're gonna do a six-hour miniseries with about five hours of actual movie, no problem. You're probably gonna have Jack Crawford and all the stuff with his wife. But in a two-hour movie where the central focus is not even Buffalo Bill, it's Clarice, it's Hannibal Lecter, and to some extent Jack Crawford. You gotta, you gotta make edits, you gotta get rid of certain things. So Ted Talley, very talented writer, when he made the decision, I, I gotta take out this entire subplot. Gotta be 100 pages worth of the book, at least 20% of the book. Jettison it, because you're not making the book. And this is something that was certainly debated, very uh, hotly debated, when all of the Harry Potter books were turned into movies, and as that franchise went along, each movie followed its particular book to a lesser extent, because Rowling's novels became progressively more complicated and dense. And you're not making a miniseries out of each book. You're making a two-hour, maybe two-and-a-half-hour, maybe hour and 45 minutes movie. And these are the decisions that you have to make. So, in a case of silence, they got the cast. Uh, Brian Cox, a, a great actor who everybody in Hollywood adores. He's on Succession, if you know uh, of that show. He's been in, he's in the X-Men movies. He's a guy, Braveheart. He's been in so many movies, and he is an actor who is known to always be prepared and to always bring it. And there are people to this day who will say that his interpretation of Lecter in the Red Dragon adaptation from the Michael Mann in 86, as I said, Manhunter, it's closer to how Lecter is presented in the books. But there is no denying the strength of what Anthony Hopkins was able to do in silence. Now, we can debate whether he's in the movie enough to win Best Actor. I don't know. I love Anthony Hopkins. What a fucking genius actor he is. Totally different kind of performer than Brian Cox, even though the accents aren't really that far apart. Their delivery is entirely different. But what Hopkins does is make every moment with Lecter just by his stillness, by what he does with his eyes, and what he does with that half-smile, half-snarl, when you can see his full face, that is. It's a master class. And I've talked about other actors giving a master class in film acting. It's a master class from Sir Anthony, or as Tom Hanks always calls him, he loves it, Sir Tony. He never calls him Sir Anthony. You see him at the Oscars, hey, Sir Tony. It's a masterclass from Sir Tony. And for me, and I don't know what anyone else's experience, I have similar reaction to silence as I do to Goodfellas, as I do to Scorsese's other masterpiece, Raging Bull. One of his other masterpieces, I should say. I know that Silence of the Lambs is a great film. I don't enjoy it. And if I go the rest of my life and never watch it again, I'm okay with that. I find it deeply uncomfortable to sit through. But another thing I should point out about the adaptation, J. 
James Gump, a.k.a. Buffalo Bill, he's not in the movie as much as, by percentage, what is shown in the book, what is described in the book. That's another choice you make. You focus on Tyrese, you focus on Hannibal Lecter, Crawford, and some of the other supporting characters, you know, the police and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Diane Baker, as uh, there, there was an actress from the 60s, you know, get this maniac out of here or whatever her dialogue was. But you focus on the other characters and you don't get that much with Buffalo Bill. He's certainly in the movie enough, but by percentage less than how he appears in the book. So Silence of the Lambs, as we know, was released 33 years ago today, Valentine's Day, 1991. I was a junior in high school, and it was a huge box office hit relative to inflation. And think about 33 years ago, how much cheaper it was to go to the movies. People were already complaining movies were prohibitively expensive. But proportionally speaking, it was a lot cheaper to go to the movies in 1991. There weren't the big, as many of the big multiplexes as many of the kind of showcase cinemas where they charge a premium because there's a food port, whatever it might be. $275 plus million in its initial run. And it was released at a historically dead time of year, which helped, and I mentioned this in a previous episode, that Silence should have been released to qualify for the Oscars for movies released in 1990 and would have upset the apple cart. I am convinced Dances with Wolves is not winning Best Picture, but Goodfellas is winning Best Picture, and I'm still frustrated at the way that played out. And I love Kevin Costner. I'm sorry. Kevin famously read one of my scripts, almost did it. Love the guy. But Martin Scorsese and Goodfellas, in my opinion, is a better movie. And in Scorsese's direction, even if I find the film uncomfortable to sit through, what a virtuoso. What an absolute maestro. But Silence of the Lambs came out, and many people I, I know, and they could even, you know, comment on this, they saw the movie immediately. This is not a film that it didn't catch fire late. It hit the box office, as we say, at a kind of dead time where movies like this normally don't come out that are going to get great reviews and big box office, and it hit immediately. It was a huge hit. And everyone I know who saw it told me immediately, you got to see this movie. Holy shit. Might be the best of this kind of movie. It's scary. I bought into it. I was on the edge of my seat. It did everything right. You know, the 17 or 18-year-old version of somebody explaining that. So I didn't actually see it until it came to video towards the end of 1991. And again, I was riveted. I was hooked. But I found the film to be deeply uncomfortable to sit in. I respect it. I am not a fan of the movie in particular. And if I am asked the question to name my favorite films of 1991, or for me, what are the best films of 1991? I would even say from the perspective of appreciating a film that I don't love. See, Goodfellas and Dances with Wolves are films I appreciate but don't love, but I know from a cinematic perspective, Goodfellas is an absolute masterpiece. I can't explain why Goodfellas and Raging Bull, two, two of Scorsese's other masterpieces, don't, I, I don't spark to them the way I do with Taxi Driver, his other unquestioned masterpiece. I don't get it, but it's what it is. So I respect Silence of the Lambs, but I believe that Barry Levinson's Bugsy, about the famous gangster, uh, the Jewish gangster, Benjamin Siegel, who was the man who invented Las Vegas, literally, as we know it, Lawrence Kasdan's Grand Canyon, 
And I'll even go so far as to say Oliver Stone's JFK, despite the fact that at least a quarter of it is total poppycock. It's all gobbledygook. But it is brilliant cinematically. I'll take that. And I will take James Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day. You ask me what's a better film? Yeah. I think Terminator 2 is a better film than Silence of the Lambs. Once again, come at me, bro. It's perfectly fine. We argue movies, nobody gets hurt. So Silence of the Lambs, to me, if we're saying, what are the best films of 1991? It's in the top 10. Even if I personally don't spark to it, cinematically, it's absolutely incredible. Again, Demi's direction is dead on. No pun intended. It's perfect. His shot making is exquisite. No denying. Just don't enjoy the movie. And those other movies I have seen, in some cases, 10 times, excuse me, 10 times or more, and they are all incredible all the way through. And Bugsy's a long movie, but every scene is perfect. In its own way, every scene in Silence of the Lambs is perfect. I'm just not engaged in the same way. I'm deeply uncomfortable. And that's just, that's just a personal thing. But as we said, Silence won all the major awards. And, and this is another debate I like. Is it a horror film? In the same way as 2017, the Jordan Peele, Get Out, is that a horror film? Technically, it is. I personally don't consider it a horror film. Bernard Rose's Candyman is a horror film. Friday the 13th, garbage, horror film. Nightmare on Elm Street, most of the series is trash, horror film. Halloween, the original, horror film. That's just a semantics argument. I respect silence and can understand and identify just how good Ted Talley's adaptation is. Taking that fantastic novel and turning it into something just as good. Remember, we talk about this, the art of adaptation, in almost all cases, especially if a book is a hugely praised literary property, it's almost impossible to make the movie anywhere near as good. Fight Club? The movie is just as good as the book. And Chuck Palahniuk's book is amazing, but David Fincher's movie is equally amazing. And I discussed how Candyman was an adaptation of a short story by Clive Barker, which is not that good. It's not that good of a story. And the movie is, for what it tries to do in the horror genre, is an absolute home run. So the art of adaptation, Silence of the Lambs, released on this day, 1991, is an extraordinary, smashing success. By any metric, whether or not you find the movie uncomfortable, deeply uncomfortable as I do, or whether it's something that you can put on and enjoy, like literally that you enjoy, because the edge of the seat aspect and Jodie, who is so good, she's so good. I love Jodie Foster. Taxi Driver, just talked about her. But it is, it is a great movie, uh, there's no denying. And because of the way it worked out, that they didn't rush it into production, when Dino De Laurentiis left the project, they took their time, they got the right guy to do the script, and they got the right actors and actresses to fulfill the roles, and you see what happens. Cinematic wizardry. That's the magic of movies. You just don't know. Or as William Goldman famously said, nobody knows anything. And speaking of William Goldman, part two of this episode the other adaptation I teased, another movie released on Valentine's Day, 27 years ago, not 33 years ago, is Clint Eastwood's adaptation of David Baldacci's, again, runaway, unbelievable best-selling novel, which, similar to Silence, although it's not the same genre, 
It is a thriller, but it's not, there's no horror element. But it was a movie that was, excuse me, a book that was hugely praised by literary critics. Pulpy, but ingenious. You don't expect characters this deep in this kind of story. Now, me referencing William Goldman's iconic remark about Hollywood of nobody knows anything. William Goldman was the writer, and let me give you a little recap of William Goldman's career. He wrote screenplays without book adaptations for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men, among others. Then he did adaptations of his own work. He wrote one of the great suspense novels of the last 60 years, Marathon Man, and the screenplay for the movie, which I maintain is one of the best suspense films made in the last 50 years. Is it safe? Is it safe? No, it's not it's not safe. It's very, very dangerous. He wrote the Princess Bride novel, and I believe he got screenplay credit. You're talking about a major talent, William Goldman, a fantastic book author who mastered the art of screenwriting. Easier said than done. But he didn't write Absolute Power. It was Baldacci's book. And I don't know the mechanics of whether Baldacci was ever approached to do an adaptation. I don't know that, and obviously I'm not going to Google. But William Goldman was brought in in the mid-1990s, and he'd been on an incredible role, even though some movies that he, where he adapted the book, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, starring Chevy Chase, uh, Sam Neill before Jurassic Park, and Daryl Hannah. That was a book my dad absolutely loved. One of his favorite books, movie wasn't so good. They couldn't figure out whether they were making a suspense story, a comedy, or science fiction, and the movie does not decide either. And it was John Carpenter who had done Halloween. Goldman did a one-month quick polish on Last Action Hero at Arnold Schwarzenegger's discretion. This was a reason why, for the rest of his life, William Goldman always went out of his way to praise Arnold Schwarzenegger, because Arnold Loved the last action hero script. He wouldn't have done the movie if he didn't. But he was convinced it needed a little something to tie the character of Jack Slater, Arnold's character, and the kid, Danny. And he said, get Bill Goldman. I'll pay him out of my own salary. I want you to get that guy. I love his work. And Goldman talked about this in two of his later books, the way that Arnold went to Baltimore. Even someone as successful as that, when another industry person well-respected, high, high in the industry, you know, maybe the biggest star in the world at the time, goes to bat for you, you don't forget it. And Goldman had, was never hesitated to talk about Arnold in that context, how much he, he adored the guy. For that specifically, because he didn't even have to go public with it, and Arnold did. Thank anyway, When Goldman was brought on board to adapt Baldacci's novel, so the basic setup, you know the setup of silence, absolute power is about a jewel thief a master jewel thief named Luther Whitney, who, as we open, is in the midst of an unbelievable heist where he has somehow managed to break into the compound of a billionaire, and he is easily, easily about to lift 30 or 40 million in jewels. And he doesn't need the money. He's doing it because he can. Why are you climbing Mount Everest? Because it's there. He's doing it because he can. He's done all the research, you know, 1990s era, it was presumably easier to crack a security system than today. While he's doing that, house is supposed to be empty. A man and a woman, both very well-dressed, come in. The woman ends up dead. 
more people come in, there is a killing, and spoiler alert, because it's right at the beginning of the book, and it's five minutes into the movie, spoiler alert, the woman is the wife of the owner of this house, the billionaire house, and the man who is with her, who killed her, is the president of the United States. And our intrepid Jules Luther Whitney has seen it all. How is he going to go to the police? How is he going to make sure the president doesn't get away with this horrendous crime? And how is he going to make sure that the Secret Service isn't able to get away with covering up this crime? And the chief of staff, whose idea it was to not go to the police and tell them, hey, this was an accident. Fuck it. So that's the setup for the book and the setup for the movie. Now here's the trick. And here's the ingeniousness of William Goldman's adaptation. In a world of the book, spoiler alert, Luther Whitney doesn't even make it halfway through the book. His character dies in prison. Oh my God, spoiler alert. My dad read Absolute Power twice. Dad, may you rest in peace. Another book that he absolutely loved. He didn't read that many books more than once. On Fire of the Vanities, he read three times. Absolute Power, he read twice. And when he found out in about 95, 96, that Clint was doing a movie, he was excited. But he also said, without going into spoiler territory, I don't know how they're going to do it if Clint's going to play the main character. Dad wouldn't tell me what he meant. He said, well, you want to read the book? Go ahead. What he meant was, when Clint Eastwood comes on board to write, excuse me, to act and direct, in my dad's brain, the CPA neurodivergent brain, he instantly calculated, well, he, the main character's not going to die 40% into the movie. I don't know how they're going to do it. He didn't know how they were going to do it. The main character in the book is a, law, is a lawyer, the head of a law firm, where Luther Whitney's daughter also works. He's the main character in the book, this other character. And when William Goldman read the book and reread the book and started doing notes, and this is all in a, a nonfiction book that William Goldman put out called Which Lie Did I Tell? A great read. If you're interested in how the movie business works and doesn't work, the two books I recommend, The Devil's Candy, which is about the making of the Bonfire of Vanities, a movie, uh, excuse me, a book and movie I just referenced, and Which Lie Did I Tell? So William Goldman goes into his process for trying to adapt absolute power. And he kept returning to the same central conundrum. If Luther Whitney survives to the end of the story, if Luther Whitney is in effect the hero, even though he's a jewel thief, who is committing a $40 million robbery when he stumbles upon this terrible crime, what do I do with the character who is the actual hero of the book? the lawyer who clears Luther Whitney's name and ultimately exposes the perpetrators. What do I do? What he did was completely eliminate the main character in the book, the lawyer who saves the day. He does not exist in the movie version of Absolute Power. The adaptation is exactly as my dad imagined it would be. Now, he didn't know the particulars, but he knew that Clint as Luther Whitney is not going to die 45 minutes into a two-hour movie. He's going to somehow be there at the end. So maybe Dad thought, well, maybe he'll work with the lawyer and the daughter. Dad assumed that Clint's character was going to prison. And during the movie, there's a scene where in the book, he gets caught. 
And in the movie, when he makes a kind of a weird escape that you're not expecting, my dad said very quietly, I don't know if he meant for me to hear this, this is different, this is different. And he was excited. I could hear it in his voice, wasn't expecting it. And he, even though it was a lot different from a book that he loved, he was a huge fan of the movie version of Absolute Power. Clint's character essentially hangs on until the end. He continues to drive the action rather than in the book when he takes the initial action and ends up dying in prison. Sorry for the spoilers. But we're talking movies here. And Clint, I don't want you thinking Clint's dead at the 45-minute mark of the movie. But this is the art of adaptation. This is the choices that get made that William Goldman was given any notes ahead of time that said, you have to do this, you have to do this, you must do this, don't do this. So when Goldman presented, here's what I've come up with, they went for it. There was no pushback. Wait, you can't delete the hero. No. In much the same way when Ted Talley eliminated the entire subplot of Jack Crawford and his dying wife because it didn't exactly, you didn't need it. You didn't need that character to be ultimately the hero when you've got Clint. Clint, who was in his mid-60s at the time, still doing heroic things and giving us a, a more complicated character and an interesting character, an anti-hero, if you will. Somebody who has been a criminal, a career criminal, who is now kind of living in retirement, but not really, stealing money and jewels for kicks. You know what he does with the jewels he steals? He puts them back. It's a game for him. That's how good he is. He's basically the Pierce Brosnan and Steve McQueen, Thomas Crown, in those movies, the Thomas Crown Affair, where he's stealing tens of millions of dollars in artwork, not to keep, not to fence, not to sell on the black market, to put back. He's doing it because he can. He's doing it because he can, not because he needs it. And Luther Whitney does not need the money. He's very happy living a, a modest life. He just wants to know he's still got it. He might be retirement age. He might be old, older, but he ain't old. He's still vital and vibrant. And so absolute power ended up being a financial success. It did well at the box office. It didn't do as well as it might otherwise have. It happened to come out at the same time as when the Star Wars trilogy, when they were preparing the, the prequels, they were just starting work producing the Star Wars prequels, episode one, two, and three, and they digitally spruced up special effects, new edits, and there was a lot of controversy back then. Oh, you're fucking up our films. George Lucas destroyed my childhood, all that kind of shit. Uh, I believe the original, Star Wars Episode Four, the 1977, A New Hope, it's called, was in theaters and doing very well. And Absolute Power made money, as did Howard Stern's Private Parts. That was another thing. You know, Stern was on uh, terrestrial radio at the time, and as much as he was a Star Wars fan, he wasn't too happy about it because, and he said the same thing. You look, even Clint is out with a movie, and our movies would do better if there were no Star Wars films from 20 years ago in theaters. Kind of crazy to think that the original Star Wars Episode Four was only 20 years old at that time, but hey, it's 1997, baby. 1977 is 20 years prior. 2004 is 20 years prior to now. But Absolute Power stands as a superlative 
adaptation. A novel that was very well received, a runaway bestseller, went through a, a number of different printings in the soft cover format, not surprisingly, as did Silence of the Lambs. And it is a movie that people recently rediscovered. I don't think it's on Netflix right now, but it had like a four month run. And there was a lot of chatter on social media, Twitter, Facebook, of people discovering it for the first time and saying, this is great. I didn't know that Clint made a movie like this because many people remember In the Line of Fire. That's a film that spent a ton of time on, on Netflix. People remember that and they remember, of course, Unforgiven and some of his other thrillers from the, you know, the 70s and 80s. But many people did not know about absolute power. And you just look at the cast from Clint, Laura Linney, Ed Harris, Gene Hackman, um, Scott Glenn, Dennis Haysbert, Judy Davis, Oscar nominee, not for that movie. It's an extraordinary cast. And everyone in the cast brings their A-game, especially Ed Harris. That was a, it's a role that could have been a little bit of a throwaway. The four years earlier, he plays the FBI director in the firm, and I would argue that he doesn't really do anything with that character. In Absolute Power, his character works. And you could see the gears turning, that Ed Harris has given it everything he's got, which I love. Love to see an actor like that. When it could be a throwaway, when it could just be picking up a paycheck, he's engaging in his scenes with Clint. They have some terrific scenes together. Clint just is having so much fun in that movie. Just it's written all over him. As hard as he's working, doing double duty, acting and directing, he looks like he's having a blast, especially in his scenes with Ed Harris. And Ed Harris's scenes with Laura Linney, too. Really, really good. Top-notch stuff all around. And Absolute Power, I've never read the book, but it is a movie that I have seen at least 10 times, and it never fails to draw me in. Because there are characters you're not really sure where their loyalties lie. And, you know, Gene Hackman, who I love, it's not the best Gene Hackman performance because the character is somewhat limited. It's not, it's not a three-dimensional character. As presented in the movie, he's pretty much straightforward. Oh, and E.G. Marshall, an actor from, he was in 12 Angry Men, if you've seen, he plays the stockbroker, the guy who has the moment with the glasses where he realizes what's happening. It's such a great movie and such an incredible moment. But E.G. Marshall plays the billionaire, Walter Sullivan, who is friends with Gene Hackman, President of the United States, Alan Richmond, and that's a huge piece of the, of the story in the book and in the movie. But the art of adaptation, there is something to it. I know this personally, adapting the book, well, two books, neither of which got produced, but um, Alfred Sloat's The Biggest Victory, uh, screenplay adaptation, which was called In Love and Baseball, which got optioned, never got produced. There were rights issues. There's always rights issues, unless you're, you know. And then um, Giants and Heroes. Diane, Tittle, Diane Tittle's autobiographical memoir of life with her father, the late great Gilbert and Abraham and Y.A. Tittle Jr., next to Dan Marino, the greatest quarterback who never won an NFL championship. And um, my screenplay did not, it weren't, wasn't rights issues. It was just that the people that were supposed to make it never ended up, they never ended up making the movie. But in that instance, the art of adaptation is sometimes you have to put different sources together. And sometimes you have to take out elements of a book that people love, and that's the trick. How can we remove things that people responded to and not have a backlash? Sometimes you can't. Even the very first Harry Potter novel all those years ago, so much of the book, the original Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's or Philosopher's Stone, depending on whether you're across the pond, so much of that book made it into that first movie, and it was still people complaining. 
They left out this. They left out this. They left out this. They left out this. Can't please everybody. But that's the way it goes. You do the best you can. And in the case of these two movies, both released on Valentine's Day, Silence of the Lambs, Valentine's Day 1991, Absolute Power, Valentine's Day 1997, Ted Talley wins the Oscar for his incredible adaptation of the book. And William Goldman didn't win anything, wasn't nominated for anything that I know of. But relatively speaking, his adaptation is just as good because he made very difficult choices, which he may not have gotten away with if he was anyone other than Oscar-winning author and screenwriter William Goldman. And with that, we've reached the end of episode 87 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to this kind of recap and uh, I found it an intriguing uh, through line discussing the art of adaptation. And one movie, which I'm pretty sure you've all seen, another you may have seen just recently in Silence of the Lambs and Absolute Power. But if you checked out this episode on the YouTube channel or enjoying, have enjoyed the content, haven't done so already, please click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. Or if you're catching up with episode 87 on the audio platform, such as Spotify or iTunes, same general rule applies. Click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 88 real, real soon. Happy Valentine's Day to one and all.